If you're visiting here with us today, you found yourself at something of an unusual Sunday for us. Normally, we work our way through a passage of the Bible. Uh, Week by week, we're typically working our way through a book of the Bible. Sometimes that takes us uh, months, but that's normally our our course and our pattern. But this morning, however, we're continuing our study, our occasional doctrinal series in the biblical foundations of the Apostles' Creed. And this morning, we're especially asking the question, what does it mean for God to be our Father? What does it mean for Him to be Almighty and the Maker of heaven and earth? Who is God our Father? That's the main question that we're going to be thinking about this morning. At the ripe old age of 20, the great London preacher, Charles Spurgeon, once declared that the highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls Father. That's what we are purposing to do by God's grace today. Now, the Apostles' Creed, as you you may know, was not so much written by Jesus' apostles as it was written to reflect the teaching of Jesus' apostles. It was written in a way, a simple way, of expressing and professing the Christian faith in biblical language. The earliest uh, form of the Apostles' Creed emerged in about 215 AD. It was used by a pastor by the name of Hippolytus in Rome, and he used it with baptismal candidates. So those who were going to be baptized and brought into the membership of the church, they would be asked, do you believe in God the Father Almighty? And the candidate would answer, I believe. And he would be asked a question about Jesus. He'd say, I believe. And he'd asked a question about the church and the Holy Spirit. And he would say, I believe. The creed over the years was, was further built out, and we have confessed a version of the Apostles' Creed together this morning. But today, we especially want to look at those words, God the Father Almighty, Maker, and Heaven and Earth. And what we're doing is we're looking at, thinking about the biblical underpinnings of that phrase. What does the Bible teach about this idea? And so we'll look at, for example, 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. And other important passages which teach us about the nature and character of God, our Heavenly Father. And this exercise of considering the Bible's uh, teaching on the core truths of the Christian faith is important for all Christians. So I think it's important for all believers to be able to express what we believe and why we believe it. And this exercise of considering the Bible's teaching on the core truths of the Christian faith, I hope will be helpful to those of you who are coming along just to explore what it is Christians believe. Two headings are going to form the outline of the rest of the sermon. I think there should be an insert provided there in the bulletin that will help you find an outline, a more fulsome outline of the sermon. But the two major headings that we're looking at together this morning are doctrine and devotion. So so under the heading of doctrine, we're going to consider the doctrine or the teaching of Scripture that's embodied in those words, God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And then under the heading of devotion, We'll ask how these truths should transform our lives. In other words, in what way does this doctrine lead us to delight in God, to praise Him, and to freshly dedicate ourselves to His service? What do they teach us about the practice of the Christian faith? That's the path that we're going to pursue today. Doctrine and devotion. Well, let's dive in. First, we want to consider what biblical doctrine this portion of the Apostles' Creed teaches. So if you would be so kind, turn in your copy of God's Word to Isaiah chapter 45, verse 18. That's where we're going to begin. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you should be able to find the passage beginning on the bottom of page 606. And if you'll notice in your handout, there's a, I think there should be an underline under that passage. 
And that little underline with respect to scripture quotations throughout the course of the sermon, those are the passages that I'm going to ask you to turn to. So that should give you a little bit of a heads up. We're going to begin with Isaiah 45, verse 18. And as we consider the foundations of this remarkable and wonderful phrase, God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, we begin with God and the uniqueness of God. And when we say that we believe in God, we say that we are believing in, the, in only one God, the triune God of Scripture. You'll notice, as we confessed the Apostles' Creed earlier in the songs that we've been singing, we confess that we believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. This triune God is only one God. Let's look at what the Lord God says about Himself there in Isaiah 45, verse 18. The prophet writes, and God reveals through His Word, For thus says the Lord Yahweh, who created the heavens, He is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord Yahweh, and there is no other. Now skip ahead just a chapter. Move ahead to Isaiah chapter 46, verses 5 to 9. And as we come to this passage, one of the things that you're going to notice is how men are excoriated for weighing out gold and silver, fashioning it into a little g-god that they carry around. And they're astounded when this little g-god can't speak back to them or can't move. Take a look at what we read here in Isaiah 46, verses 5 to 9. To whom then will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith and, goldsmith and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind. You transgressors, remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Well, I hope that you are beginning to see at least two things. First, that the God of the Bible really is and truly the only true God. And number two, that the God of the Bible possesses actually all of the attributes that the little g-gods don't. Right? That these little g-gods that we see here from Isaiah's prophecy, they were made by men. When the God of the Bible is the maker of men. Indeed, as we'll learn shortly, he's the maker of heaven and earth. These little g-gods, they, they lack all power. Whereas the God of the Bible is almighty. These little g-gods, they're incapable of speaking and relating to their worshipers. Whereas the God of the Bible, he speaks to his creatures and relates to them as father. The God of the Bible, as the old catechisms teach us, is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. In his being, he's full of wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. These would be wonderful attributes for you to explore uh, in Scripture. And as I said, the Bible teaches us, and so does the Creed, that there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one God, same in essence, equal in power and glory. And today we're especially looking at the first person of the triune Godhead, the, the Father. The Bible speaks of God the Father in at least three distinguishable senses. There are probably more like 12 of them, but today we're just going to look at Three, God is the Father of the Eternal Son, who we know as Jesus Christ. God is the Father, He's the author of all mankind. And God, He is the Father of Christians in a special way, through salvation in His Son. 
the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's unpack these three ways that the Bible speaks about God as Father. We, we refer to the first person of the Godhead as God the Father. God is Father and was eternally so by virtue of his relation to God the Son. And this identifies God's utter independence as Father. In other words, God wasn't Father because he made mankind. That wasn't contingent upon his fatherhood. God wasn't father because he made sinners like you and me his children. No, God was always father. He was eternally father. And as so, all throughout the Gospels, we hear the connection between Jesus, God the Son, and God the Father. So in Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, at Jesus' baptism, we hear these words from God the Father. This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. And later in that same Gospel, Matthew chapter 11... Verse 27, Jesus says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. Jesus, he identified God as his Father. And who can forget the story of Mary and Joseph leaving Jesus behind in Jerusalem? Remember what Jesus said to them when they caught back up with him? He said, I had to be in my Father's house. Yes, Jesus identified God as his Father. Turn in your Bibles to another occasion in which Jesus identifies God as Father, to John's Gospel. John chapter 5, especially look at verses 19 and 20. That's on page 890 of the Bibles provided. Once you get there, you'll notice how Jesus identifies. He connects himself to God the Father. This is part of Jesus' great defense of his ministry that's going on. He's facing some opposition, and he defends his ministry in part by saying, I'm simply doing the will of of my father. This is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter, sorry, not Matthew, John chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him that you may marvel. Do you see the connection that Jesus shares with God the Father? And he shares this connection all throughout John's Gospel. Other writers of the New Testament also unpack the meaning of the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. So, for example, in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, we're told that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. Think for a minute about what that teaches us about God the Father and God the Son. In order for God the Father to send the Son, the Son had to exist prior to His incarnation. And indeed, He did. He existed for all eternity. Which also reminds us again that God existed as Father for all eternity. John chapter 1, verse 1 even reveals this to us. That even in the beginning of the creation of the world, the Son was with the Father. He existed in eternity past. So, one of the implications of what we're saying when we say we believe in God the Father is that we are saying that we believe that God the Father was always Father. He was the Father of God the Son. But the Bible also speaks about God as Father in, in another sense, in that He's the author of all mankind. Uh, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17, verses 22 to 28. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, that's on page 926. And when you get there, you're going to notice that we're dropping in on an evangelistic conversation between Paul and the men of Athens. And one of the things that he does is he explains how God is the father of all mankind. Read Acts chapter 17, verses 22 to 28 now. Acts chapter 17, beginning there in verse 22. So Paul, 
standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by hand, but made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods, periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed God's offspring. Notice there that everyone has been made by God. In that sense that every man, every woman, every child has been given life by God. And God is in that sense their father. He is father in the sense of creation. But he is also father in a unique unique sense in salvation in his son, Jesus Christ. God's father in a special way to Christians. In other words, uh, we see in John chapter 1 verse 12 that we learn that all who receive Jesus, that is all who have, uh, have believed upon him and in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. It's not a right that's ours by birth, by physical birth. It's a right that God gives through the new birth in his Son. This is different, again, from the common fatherhood of all mankind. Whereas God causes the rain to shine on the just and the unjust, all mankind, he's relating to his children, those who believe in his son, in a special way. So in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, we read, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. It's only through a, a faith union with God the Son that we become sons and daughters of God. God the Father loves his spiritual children in a special way. So turn in your Bibles to see this from 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 to 2. You can find that on page 1022 of the Bibles provided. 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. And notice the Apostle John's utter amazement at God's love for him. And we too should be amazed. John writes... See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. Do you see the the wonder and the beauty and the amazement that the, the Apostle John has in God's love in bringing him to faith in Jesus Christ. This love is something that we see here in the text that God has given. He's freely given his love to us. This isn't something that we've earned from him or tricked him into doing for us. Now, God gives his love to sinners. In his book, Screwtape Letters, uh, C.S. Lewis through the mouth of Uncle Screwtape, says that God loves to make all these disgusting little human vermin into sons. And to use John's language, uh, God loves to make all these disgusting little children of the devil into sons and daughters 
of God. That's what God is doing in his love. When he regenerates our cold and callous and dead hearts and draws us to faith in Jesus Christ, we become his children. This is good news, isn't it? The holy God makes us his children in salvation. But let's be honest about the kind of people that we are. Our parents were stuck with us when we came into this world. But God is not stuck with us. He pursues us. He pursues us even in our sin and unrighteousness. How could he pursue us when he is so holy and we are so filled with sin? We're liars and thieves. We're idol worshipers and mental adulterers. We commit murder in our hearts when we have hatred toward others. We're discontent with what God has given us. How could God make us his children when we've broken his law? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. I mentioned it earlier, but we need to go back to it again. In Galatians 4, 4 and 5, Paul writes, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as Son. Not only did the divine, eternal Son of God take flesh to himself, But he was also born under the law. And having been born under the law, the law that we have broken, Jesus can keep it and fulfill it for us. Jesus kept the law personally and perfectly and perpetually. When we have broken the law personally, we have not kept it perfectly. And sometimes we have broken it perpetually. But Jesus did this for us in order to redeem us from the curse and the consequences of the law. And so that we might be received, adopted as sons and daughters of God. You see, God the Father sent His Son to make us sons and daughters of God. This is amazing and gracious of God. Because when you think about it, He already had a child. He already had an heir He didn't need anymore. And yet, He purposed to bring more children into His family through His Son. Our God is a good Father. He's a gracious Father. He's a generous Father. And it gets better. He's also an almighty Father. He does All that he wants to do. He can and does work in wonderful ways. Not only to secure his glory. But also his children's good. The scriptures teach us. That God is almighty. That is that he's omnipotent. He's able to do whatever he wills. So in Matthew chapter Mark. Chapter 10 verse 27. Jesus said that all things are possible with God. What man cannot do. God can do. He's the only one who can ever do anything that he wants to do. As one children's song Put it. You remember when Sarah laughed at the idea uh, that God could give her a baby when she was pushing 90. She laughed. And do you remember what God's response was to Abraham when he responded to this situation? He said, is anything too hard for the Lord? Of course, the answer is no. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. And when he purposes to do something, his will cannot be thwarted. So in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 27, we read, For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? No one can stop the will and way of our Father Almighty. Job himself confesses in Job 42, verse 2, that I know you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. This is a comfort to believers, that our God is in control and all-powerful and can do everything he needs to do to serve and protect His children. You know, one of the names by which God reveals Himself in the Old Testament is El Shaddai, or the Almighty. And we see our God's great power in incredible events like the the ten plagues 
or the parting of the Red Sea or causing the sun to stand still or leading Israel in the wilderness by a cloud by day or a pillar of fire by night or the flashing thundering mountain of Sinai. But nowhere more clearly is God's power seen in the salvation of sinners. Think of what Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 17 says. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. When you stop and think about it, our God is so mighty that he ordained, he ordered and orchestrated the history of salvation in his son so that we could be saved and redeemed. Just think about the text that we studied to last week. Do you remember what those believers prayed in Acts chapter 4 verse 28? God, you had planned and predestined that the cross would take place. God had to orchestrate, order, and ordain and oversee all of those events in history. Billions and billions of events with their fallouts and consequences and motives and actions by various people to make sure that the cross took place. God orders and ordains all things. He's guiding, preserving, and governing all of his creatures and all of their actions. And he's accomplishing our salvation in the midst of it. He is sovereign. He is mighty. Our Father Almighty was able to do this because he's the maker of heaven and earth. The author of all creation has all power over creation. We see God's power over creation. We see that this maker of heaven and earth is revealed in Genesis chapter 1. If you're looking for Genesis chapter 1, it's the first page in the Bible, and it's literally page 1. So turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, and let's behold our God who made heaven and earth. We see God's power over creation. We ought to marvel at what he reveals about himself. You see there in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness He called night. And there was evening. And there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. And let it separate the waters from the, from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together, he called the seas. And God saw that it was good. You know, we could keep going in reading Genesis chapter 1. We'd see that uh, God's work of creation is making all things of nothing by the word of his power in the space of six days. And all very good. Indeed, we would learn that on the sixth day, that God created man, male and female, after his own image, in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, with dominion over the creatures, as an expression of his rule and reign in the world. So when the Apostles' Creed uses the phrase, maker of heaven and earth, it means to communicate that God made every shining star above, and that he called them each by name. That he made every small atom below that we might know his fame and that God made every single thing in between so that we might serve him as king. Friends, this is our God. He's the only God. He is our father in creation and salvation. 
He is especially the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is almighty, doing all that He is pleased to do. And He made everything in this universe. And as such, He deserves our devotion. Which is what we turn to think about in our second point. Devotion. Here we need to think about how this doctrine should transform our affections and our attitudes and our actions. We want to consider what we should praise God for in response to this doctrine. Given that God is the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, how should we delight in Him? So let's think now about the devotion that is due to our God, the one who made heaven and earth. And I'm going to jumble up these phrases in their order for our purposes here. Uh, We should join our voices with the elders of Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, who cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive blessing and honor and glory and power, for you have created all things. And for your praise and by your will, they existed and were created. Friends, brothers and sisters, think for a moment about the immense privilege that we have in worshiping the Creator. The privilege of worshiping Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Think of the immense privilege it is to worship Him who spoke and it came to be. Who commanded and it stood firm. Who said, let there be light and there was light. Let there be an expanse and He made an expanse. And He made it all very good. And all of these things continue this day by His appointment. And his good pleasure. We've been called into worship of this great and glorious God. When you encounter God's grand creation, give him the praise that's due to his name. Who can deny the the beauty of some of the gigantic rainbows we've seen in our area over these past few weeks? Uh, An experience like that should make you stop and praise God for his mighty power. Who can not marvel at the beauty of the cherry blossom trees in our area? Or the melodious songs that the birds sing every morning. The mountains, the oceans, the skies, the stars, they all proclaim His handiwork from day to day. And for all of this and more, our God deserves our praise. And we should praise Him that He has made the world beautiful. He could have made it ugly and unappealing, but He's not. He's shown His loveliness, His great beauty and character in His very creation itself. Consider too... That our God has made a stable world. He could have made a world without laws like gravity. He could have made it a chaotic world. But no, he's a God of order. And he has made a world that is duly ordered. But we live in a world that reflects our maker's logic. A world in which 2 plus 2 really does equal 4. Our God, he made a stable world. A reliable world. And it's only because that he has... That science can actually pursue the study of God's world. Scientists, you see, whether they realize it or not, their enterprise is dependent upon God creating and maintaining a stable world. No matter how much scientists, some scientists, may wish to use science to deny God, the very foundation of their enterprise is dependent upon the fact that God has made a stable world. And not only should we praise God that He's made this world beautiful, He's made this world orderly, But we should praise God that he has made men and women in his image. This is the truth why all men everywhere possess inherent dignity and value and worth. Because God is our maker. Now, there are some significant implications to this. This truth that God is the maker of heaven and earth ought to cause us to be freshly dedicated to serving him in a number of ways. First, 
since he made the world and all that is in it, and since he made men and women in his image, we are to be stewards of his creation. We ought to exercise stewardship and dominion over God's creation as he would. Uh, This takes place in, in any number of ways, from constructing and building to cultivating and growing to taming and tending animals or to caring for the portion of creation that God has entrusted to our care. It is good and right, for example, that we cut the grass here at the church or at your home. Uh, It is good and right to trim the bushes and to make sure uh, that the place doesn't get overrun with weeds. All of this and more uh, shows and is being a good steward of God's creation. Second, we ought to be those, since we're made in God's image and since all are made in God's image, all humans are made in God's image, we ought to be those who protect the life the human life that God brings into this world. Since all men are made in God's image, all life is precious and deserves protection. It is wrong, it's wicked, to end life in the womb. God brought that baby into being. The scriptures teach us that he knit us together in our mother's womb. So when life is intentionally destroyed in the womb, it is an all-out assault on the maker of heaven and earth and the image bearer that he's placed In that womb, the author of creation has authority over that life. We do not. No, it is not actually your body. That baby has a body of its own that God has made. No, it is not your choice. It was God's choice to place a baby inside your womb. You are not the author of creation. And therefore, you do not have authority over that life. God does. That child is to be gladly received as a gift from God. And from his good hands. God means for us to receive the blessing of that baby. Or to bless someone else with that baby through adoption. When it comes to life, the maker gets to determine the decisions that are made. And this also means that we need to think carefully about end-of-life care. We need to understand what is taking place in end-of-life care. Many of you know that my mother, she served as an ER and ICU nurse for nearly 30 years And I can remember an occasion which she would come home from the hospital after work in my teenage years where she was greatly grieved by a number of the decisions that physicians were making. Um, One physician she referred to as Dr. Death because on more than one occasion, this physician would instruct her to give a patient a a high dosage of medication that would essentially, effectively, end the patient's life. And when that happened, my mother would tell him, no, she wouldn't do it. While we ought not artificially prolong life when God seems to be bringing that life to an end, we also should not prematurely take life or end life. The maker is the one who gets to make those decisions. Believing that God is the maker of heaven and earth means that we ought to be dedicated to protecting and preserving life as best we can from beginning to end. Thirdly, and significantly, we ought to be stewards of our bodies themselves. We ought to receive the gifts of our bodies that the maker gave to us. In other words, if our maker made us a male, a man, uh, then we ought to recognize that his design for us was and is very good. If our maker made us a female, then you ought to realize, if you're a woman, you ought to realize that his design for you was and is very good. Uh, The sex that God gave to us in our mother's womb is a very good gift. He does not intend for us to mutilate it, to mask it, or to misuse it. God does not intend for us to mutilate and harm our bodies in an attempt to change our sex. He does not mean for us to mask our sex 
In other words, if we're a man, we ought not hide that fact. Or if we're a woman, we ought not hide the fact that we're a woman. But we also must not misuse our sex. In other words, we must not present ourselves to seductively or to attract uh, inappropriate attention from others to us. God intends for us to use our sexed bodies in ways that bring Him honor and glory. In part, our confession of the maker of heaven and earth it includes humbly recognizing that the one who made the world knows how it best functions and glorifies him. If you wanted to summarize it, it could be summarized like this. Our father knows best. He made us. He knows how we're called to function and live life in this world. And we show our submission to God by living in the grain of his providence and ways for us. So we submit our hearts and lives, our passions and our plans to him. And there are so many more implications for what it means to believe and live in life of God being maker of heaven and earth. But for now, we need to consider how we can express our devotion to him in the truth that he is our father. And I especially want us to focus in on how he's our father in salvation, how we are his children by adoption in and through Jesus Christ. The first and most important way that we show our delight in God, our father, is by receiving his son, Jesus Christ, as our Lord. In 1692, the Puritan minister Thomas Watson wrote these words, See the amazing goodness of God, that he is pleased to enter into the sweet relation of a father to us. He showed power in being our maker, but mercy in being our father. That when we were enemies and our hearts stood out as garrisons against God, he should conquer our stubbornness and of enemies make us children and write his name and put his image upon us and bestow a kingdom of glory. What a miracle of mercy this is. Friends, brothers and sisters, God has made us to relate to him as our loving heavenly father. He's made us in his image to love and serve and honor and obey him. But we know the truth of our lives. We know that we haven't always loved and served God. We've lived our own way rather than God's way. Father knows best, but we've asserted that we've known best. And this is what the Bible calls sin. It's rebelling against our Heavenly Father. And because of our sin, we deserve to face eternal punishment for it. The Bible tells us the wages of sin is death. But here's the good news, that our Heavenly Father sent His one and only most beloved Son to be paid our wages in His death on the cross. Jesus lived the life that we've not lived, the life of perfect obedience to God the Father. And Jesus humbly laid his life down as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice so that we might be reconciled to God and received and adopted as children into his family. This is what Jesus has done. And on the third day, the third day after his death, God raised Jesus from the grave, vindicating him and proving to us all that if we embrace the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, if we believe in God's son, we too will be received as sons and daughters of God. We'll receive that in he heavenly inheritance that God has promised. Friend, if you're here this morning, you're not a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to urge you to turn from your sins, to trust in God's Son, and become a son or daughter of God, to be a child of the living God. And there are privileges and rights that God entrusts to His children. As God adopts us into His family by faith, He gives us privileges like praying, and privileges like receiving His discipline. We ought to think about how we might prayerfully depend upon God our Father and receive His paternal discipline. 
One of the privileges that Jesus teaches us in his ministry about God being our father is that we get to call out to him in prayer. Jesus has given us access to God the Father. And so we really should approach God in prayer. If we have this privilege, we really should exercise it. Not everyone has this privilege of calling out to God in prayer. But those who do, should. I wonder if you have difficulty praying. I wonder if you get distracted. Uh, If your mind wanders. Have you thought about praying out loud? Praying out loud to God. I was talking with a friend earlier this week and I recommended that he pray out loud. And he said, well, I think they're going to think I'm weird. And I said, well, just go in the other room and tell them I'm, I'm going to be praying to God in that room. Uh, and, and then, well, they'll think what they'll think. But you will go pray and talk to God. Think about your, your personal relationships, how you communicate with someone else. When you're face to face with someone else, you speak to them audibly so that they can hear. Now, it's true that God hears and knows the words even before they're on our lips. And yet, I think I found it helpful to talk to God out loud, to share with Him what's on my heart. And here's the good news about God. At the end of a long day, He's not tired. He's not like some of the fathers here, maybe myself sometimes, where maybe we're grumpy and we're not so eager to hear the petitions of our children. But God is never like that. He's always eager and ready to hear the cries of His children. He always has a willing ear turned toward us. So Christian, call out to your Father in heaven in prayer. Remember the, the, the parable of the prodigal son, where that son returned home and he was ready to receive his son who had returned home. So when you are, are mired in sin, confess your sins. He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He is eager to hear your petitions even when you come to him and confess your sins. And he will love you and embrace you and receive you as he has from day to day. Oh, brothers and sisters, we ought to take up this privilege of turning to our God and Father in prayer and call out to him. That's one of our great privileges. But if you can believe it, another great privilege of Christians is actually being disciplined by God. This is what I was referring to with respect to paternal discipline. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. Verses 5 to 11. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage on page 1009, I believe. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 to 11. When you think back to your childhood or children, if you think about your experience and childhood of growing up even now, then you know that discipline is not pleasant, but painful. And what the writer of the Hebrews is about to teach us is that God's paternal discipline That his fatherly discipline is a blessing and it's for our good. And as surprising as it sounds, we ought to receive and rejoice in God's fatherly discipline. Follow along now as I read Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 to 11. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him for the lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives it is for discipline that you have to endure god is treating you as sons for what son is there whom his father does not discipline if you are left without discipline in which all have participated then you are illegitimate children and not sons besides this we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us And we respected them. 
Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of our spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful, peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now, we can only skip across the surface of this passage. So let me just point out to you some implications concerning God's fatherly discipline from what the writer to the Hebrews says. And you should be a good Berean and go back uh, later and, and investigate uh, what, what I'm saying here. You see there in verse 5 that God's fatherly discipline reminds us of His Word. The Word that we have forgotten today. God does that through the Bible. He reminds us of His Word through the Bible and especially through preaching and teaching the Bible and our reading of the Bible. And verse 5 also teaches us that we ought not dismiss or lightly regard God's discipline, but instead to receive it as a good gift from His hand. You see there in verse 6, we learn that discipline is a sign of God's love. In fact, if you are not disciplined by God, then you are probably not a child of God. That's what verse 8 says. You know, I, I don't discipline children from another family because they're not my children. And the same is true with God. He disciplines those He loves and counts as His children. Verse 7 tells us that God's discipline is going to involve hardship. Now this seems to be an obvious point, but we often forget it. God's discipline is going to involve hardship. At the end of verse 9 tells us that we should be subject to God's discipline. In other words, we shouldn't try to escape it or run from it. This would be to despise God's discipline. Verse 10 teaches us that God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in His holiness. Discipline is one of the means that God uses to make us holy. Sinclair Ferguson put it well when he said, when he said quote, If we do not value holiness, we will not welcome discipline. Think about that. If we do not value holiness, we will not welcome discipline. Do you value holiness? Do you welcome discipline? And according to verse 11, God is training us in discipline. He's training us in the way of life that He wants us as His children to live. You see, He's shaping us, fashioning us into His image. Yes, He's taking a hammer and chisel to us, and that is painful. But it makes us more like His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and brings Him pleasure and really us good. You know, God, we need to remember, will sometimes use painful circumstances to discipline us. And even in that, He's actually healing us. I, I think there's a useful illustration. I remember this past year watching a college basketball player named, by the name of Daryl Morsell. He's part of everybody's favorite college basketball team, the Maryland Terrapins. But he had problems over the course of the season uh, with his, his shoulder being dislocated. So one time during a game, his shoulder came, came out. It became dislocated. He immediately called for the trainer. All of this happened so quickly. It was captured live on TV. The trainer ran over to him, grabbed his arm, and shoved it back into its socket. And you could see the pain he experienced. But that pain he experienced allowed him to finish the game. Our Father sometimes disciplines us and causes us to undergo pain so that we can finish the course of this life to bring him pleasure and honor and glory, to finish the race that he has set before us. 
Our Father sometimes lays a heavy hand of discipline on us. He wounds us to heal us and help us finish the race and make it home to Him. This is a joy of being a Christian. That our Father loves us so much that He disciplines us. And we ought to be dedicated to receiving His discipline as an act of generous grace from His hand. God is not just our Father. He is our Almighty Father. And what a comfort this is to the people of God. J.I. Packer once wrote that men treat God's sovereignty as a theme for controversy. But in Scripture, it's a matter for worship. It's such a comfort to us that our God is in control of all things. Indeed, one of the sweetest verses in Scripture has to be Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who God loves, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. Though our lives may be chaotic, we know that our Almighty God is in control. That God is omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent. That God is all-knowing, everywhere present, and all-powerful, gives Christians peace in soul. God's almightiness is what leads people like General Stonewall Jackson to say things like, my religious belief teaches me that I'm just as safe on the battlefield as I am in my bed. And that is no less true today. Even with a deadly virus running around, Christian, you are just as safe in your pew as you are in your home. God is sovereign over the smallest particles in all of creation. God exercises His great power to make sure that we make it safely home. So in what way should we be freshly dedicated to our Father in light of His almighty power? Well, it strikes me that I could do no better than what the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19. He says, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. Christian, this is exactly what the Lord Jesus did. That's what we're called to to entrust our souls to our almighty God and Father and to keep doing good for His glory. And this is what I want us to think about as we conclude. Brothers and sisters, this is what we confess. He is the only true God. He is our Father by creation and if we're Christians, by salvation. We entrust our lives to Him because He's mighty and merciful. Consider these words from the Puritan minister Thomas Brooks who wrote, God hath all power to defend you, all wisdom to direct you, all mercy to pardon you, all grace to enrich you, all righteousness to clothe you, all goodness to supply you, and all happiness to crown you. Christian, you have believed. Keep believing that God is your Father, that He is Almighty, and that He's your Maker, and has drawn near to you in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.